autism is an underlying brain wiring that privileges deep, long attention on something. This is the theory of monotropism. Sees details before putting together the big picture. This is called bottom-up processing. It often co-occurs with other medical issues. It can definitely and co-occur with intellectual disability, which is another one of the kind of like visibly autistic presentations. The co-occurrence rate is decreasing the more people understand how broad and diverse the autistic community is. There's a higher proportion than we thought of people who are autistic and not also intellectually disabled. What particularly is so important about knowing whether you're autistic or not is that the operating system of your brain is different than if you're not autistic. And the things that help you regulate and be well and sustain a life are different. Welcome to the Daily Naked Pair Podcast, brought to you by Rocco Blue, the first ever brand focused on supporting parents with special needs children. Naked Parent Nation is a group of parents with special needs children who are willing to get vulnerable Strip it all down and take a look at ourselves, our parenting, our family, and our plans to create a life beyond our wildest dreams. On today's show, we'll be discussing autistic identity and what happens when you allow yourself to grow and transform in the presence of your child. Hello, Naked Parent Nation, and welcome to today's episode of the Naked Parent Podcast. My name's Chad Ratliff, and I'm your host. Before I introduce you to our guest today, let me start by sharing a message from Naked Parent Nation. Naked Parent Nation is a worldwide community of parents and professionals raising children with all kinds of needs. We come together to share our naked truth, support our fellow parents, and inspire the inner growth that each of us needs to build the life and family of our dreams. For the parents that are struggling, we want you to know that we will love you until you can love yourself. For your children, we pray and send power from our collective group. Naked parenting is the process of moving from where you are to where you wanna be. Naked parenting understands that the mind is responsible for all of our problems. As you shed the layers of your mind, you will find your true essence. As you continue to peel back the layers, you will return to the deepest truths of your own being. Through connection with one another, a belief that there is more, we expand our consciousness so that the challenges that perplex us today dissipate one by one until we're able to see and experience gratitude and beauty in everything just as it is. We have the power to create any kind of life we want for ourselves and our families. We do this by living in the naked present moment, one day at a time. If this is your first time connecting with us, I hope you feel the love that's here for you. Together we walk different paths side by side. And we have such a gift today from Rabbi Shoshana Meira Friedman, who brought us our grounding exercise, our meditation before we get to the show. So Rabbi Shoshana, welcome. Thank you so much, Chad. We'll begin with a mindfulness meditation. So I invite you to find a comfortable position, which might be lying down or standing or sitting. And feel free to move or fidget or rock if that helps your body regulate and relax. 
take a deep, comfortable breath in and out. One more time in and out. And just now allow the breath to enter and leave your body naturally. Noticing that there's no effort here. The atmosphere breathes us in and out without our having to think about it. Bring your attention now to where your body meets the ground or the chair or the floor. What that feels like against your skin or your clothes. Feel the weight of you, the hug of gravity that is keeping you on the planet. Again, a gift without any effort from us. Allow yourself to sink in to the ground, surrendering your weight to a world that can hold you. Now in whatever position you are in, picture that below your waist into your legs are roots, that your entire lower body is actually underground snuggled into the soil as though you were a tree. Feel the weight of this, the grounded sensation. Now imagine these roots going deeper, deeper into the soil until they hit bedrock. And deeper still, the energy of your body's roots going all the way down into the core of Mama Earth. It's so easy to forget because we are mobile creatures, but we grow from this planet just as sure as a tree grows. Every atom of us is from her and will return to her. The planet supports us unconditionally in a very real physical sense. She is the parent of us all. Keeping your legs in this deep, grounded, imagined space. Turn your attention to the inside of your body, to your bones. Could start with anywhere that you can find felt sensation inside your body. It might be your upper arms, your ribs, your legs. Take a moment, bring your mind inside your body. Letting the breath come naturally. Feeling the weight of your own bones, the strength of them, holding you up, holding your body in integrity. Now again, in whatever position you are in, note that your spine connects your body and holds you upright just as a tree trunk does. That your other bones, your peripheral bones are like branches, reaching up and out. This is your energetic core. It is you, it's your essence. No one can be this but you, 
No one can take it away. Now in your mind's eye, see a beam of sunlight that is coming down from above. A beam of sunlight that is exactly for you. No matter the time of day or the weather, this beam of sunlight is always shining. Shining onto your body, shining deep into your bones, just the way that sunlight nourishes the tissues of a tree. We are each of us, humans, earthlings, held here by the warm hug of gravity and the bright light of the sun. And this is as true scientifically as it is spiritually. Throughout the haze and rush and overwhelm of our days, this support is available to you 24-7. No matter where you are or how you are, how hard or how joyful things are, your roots go down and your core goes up and you are nourished. This support is available to your child or your children too. It's our birthright as earthlings. As you go forward in your day, you can remind yourself, I am grounded. My core is me. I am grounded. My core is me. Let's allow another cleansing breath. Feeling that energy coming up from the core of the earth through our roots into our bodies. And out. And another breath this time, receiving the light from that special sunbeam that is meant just for us, deep into the core of our bones. I offer gratitude to my teacher, Linda Cesera, energy master and teacher for inspiring this version of her energy basics and gratitude to you for your attention and practice today. come back to your body, wiggle fingers and toes and flutter your eyes open. Wow, what a treat. That's amazing. I love that we do this at the beginning of the show because I hope that it reminds me and our listeners that it doesn't, we don't need lots of time to kind of get away from some of the challenges that we face on a daily basis. Yes, it's beautiful. And I've never been on or listened to a podcast that does this. So I commend you and um, I'm grateful. Aww. Well, I I'm excited to learn more about you because I only know a little bit about you. I know you're a rabbi, you're a writer, you're a mother, you're a climate activist, you're very creative uh, in many different media outlets. You've served in multiple Jewish communities. Your writing has been published in the New York Times and Yes Magazine. You have a picture book, The Tide is Rising, a climate movement anthem is forthcoming from beaming books and a late diagnosed autistic woman she posts you post regularly 
Um, there's so much to you. Tell us <laughs> what I missed. Let us know who we're going to be hearing from today. And welcome to the show. Thank you, Chad. Thank you for the warm welcome. And thank you to all of the listeners and viewers. I would not have thought I would get to be on a parenting podcast. I have been extremely surprised by the turns that my life has taken. And that's a lot of what I want to talk about today. I was raised with a lot of creativity and big dreams. Um, I really dreamed of saving the world from the environmental crisis when I was a very little girl, feeling I'm hyper empathic and was feeling the pain of the world from a very, very young age in a very overwhelming way. And this led me to, to feel responsible in a way that I think, you know, some people do, but many don't in a very personal way for making the world better. And I now can look back at that and understand it from the perspective of realizing that I'm autistic and that it's actually common for autistic children who, especially those of us who are hyper empathic, to create stories um, about these sensations and feelings that we have in our body and to feel responsible for the pain we feel because we don't otherwise know why we're feeling it. And that feeling of wanting to save the world, there's a word for that too. It's called grandiosity. It's also a story that is um, often comes along when a child is particularly gifted in some areas, but struggles in others. So that was definitely me. And it's this question, you know, without understanding who I was, I made up unconsciously the stories that could make sense of who I was, that I had something I needed to offer. That really, really drove my life. I finally found my stride in my early 30s. I, I went to rabbinical school, um, which is a full six years, full-time study program after undergraduate. And I learned so much about my own tradition. I was steeped in Torah study and Talmud and the liturgy and learning prayers and was extremely into all of it and felt that as someone who loves to perform and loves to do public speaking and loves to teach, this is a career that made a lot of sense for me. And many progressive rabbis are also activists because we can use our pulpit and we can use our title to help change the power systems that are causing so much suffering and harm in our world. So it really was a dream come true for me. I found my place in the climate movement in around 2015. My husband and I wrote a song called The Tide is Rising and it went viral, has gone viral over the last eight years in the movement. Lots of people know it. Again, like dream come true as a creative, empathic kid who wanted to change the world. Like my music's going places. Um, I get to give sermons. I got really into doing civil disobedience and to supporting those who are doing nonviolent civil disobedience to stop fossil fuel projects or to try to stop fossil fuel projects. And essentially, my early 30s was this like homecoming into a dream, right? I had dreamt this thing. And it had manifested. The world was burning, but, <laughs> but I was doing the work that I had been called to do. And then I got pregnant. And so many of the coping strategies that I had had started to fall away. Mm. I had not realized, I hadn't put it together, how anxious I felt in my job, how often I was on the couch in panic attacks in between meetings, how hard it was for me to eat lunch just to calm my body down enough to eat. It wasn't like, oh, I can't make time for lunch. It was like physiologically, I can't swallow because I'm too hyped up. How hard it was to sleep, how exhausted I felt after interacting with my amazing congregants who I adored and 
did not feel anxious about in any cognitive sense, but my body was. And I did not have language for any of this, though I was in therapy this whole time. And my pregnancy was difficult and the birth was very difficult. And I gave birth to an extremely beautiful and vivacious and huge emotions baby. And I stopped being able to sleep much because of being a new mom. And I was recovering from a difficult birth and that ended in a C-section. I was a complete mess. The medication that I had been on for 18 years, I knew had sort of worn away and I needed a new med, but because I was pregnant, I couldn't shift medications. I had tried and had an allergic reaction. It was a crazy story. So I was essentially in what I now know was a period of acute autistic burnout where I was really barely functioning, only able to take care of my child and my most like very, very basic needs. But I was also expected to go back to work full-time as a pulpit rabbi, which I tried and then ended up going down to part-time. And what I want to talk about today, and I don't want to sort of give away the whole story here, but the, because I'd like us to have more maybe of a back and forth, but where I stand now is what I will, the story I'll tell about my child and discovering who he is, was the key to discovering who I am and the key to understanding what about the life I was living and the big dreams I had dreamt wasn't actually working for me and what might a life look like that does work not only for my child, but also for me. Wow. That is probably the deepest way I've ever started a show as beautifully spoken. And I don't know if you remember when I was introducing you in the bio, I tripped up my words because I read, I thought I was going to, I was reading it wrong because when I talked to you, I didn't see anything autistic. So I thought I was reading it wrong. And I'm like, um, can you share kind of when did that start for you? When did you know? And for the people that are saying she's not autistic, like, I'm autistic people. So yeah, so I'm just writing a story about this. So one big, so just a little bit of public education before we get into my specifics, because this is like, I'm autistic and this is currently my special interest is educating about autism. So we have a very, very narrow view as a culture, very outdated and narrow view of what autism looks like. Autism doesn't have a look. For years, it and, and in many circles still, and pediatricians still, and therapists still are operating under a very outdated mode that certain very particular externally observable traits, such as lack of or low eye contact, flat voice affect, visible stims like rocking back and forth or hand flapping, particular interests in trains and math, that those are where are how you diagnose whether someone's autistic or not. Are there the things that a neurotypical person would look at someone and say, oh yeah, that's autism. There are many autistic people who more or less fit what I just described. And there are many, many, many who don't. It's a little bit like if somebody said that it's like any stereotype. Well, in this particular case, there are people who fit the stereotype and it's not, it's not, it's not a negative stereotype. I think it's sort of like saying like, I have a gay friend who likes to wear pink and is into Broadway. Therefore, and I know, you know, there's plenty of gay men who wear pink and are into Broadway. Therefore, if you're not wearing pink and you're not into Broadway, you are not a gay man. Like that just doesn't hold water, but that's pretty much where we're at with autism. So autism is an underlying brain wiring that privileges deep, long attention on something. This is the theory of called monotroping, monotropism, and sees details before putting together the big picture. This is called bottom-up processing. It often co-occurs with other medical issues. It can definitely, and 
co-occur with intellectual disability, which is another one of the kind of quote, like visibly autistic presentations. Um, though the co-occurrence rate is decreasing the more people understand how broad and diverse the autistic community is, there's a higher proportion than we thought of people who are autistic and not also intellectually disabled. What particularly is so important about knowing whether you're autistic or not is that the operating system of your brain is different than if you're not autistic. And the things that help you regulate and be well and sustain a life are different. And so if you are like me, and I'm in the middle of writing a piece that hopefully will get published at some point soon, but I don't have an outlet yet, but I'm writing a piece about this because I was in therapy for 20 years, 20 years, people. And I was talking about feeling buzzing in my body and feeling sensorily overwhelmed and feeling hyper empathy and this weird amorphous sense of needing to save the world. And a strange thing that happened when I was a kid where I was like completely obsessed with a teacher where it kind of ended badly and my eating issues and these uh, episodes of feeling so just like upset. My emotions are so overwhelming that the only thing that would help me is to slap my face to get the, like that the sting of it would actually be a calming mechanism. I brought this to therapy. Okay. But people never suspected I was autistic because they're looking for those outward, the Broadway and the pink, right? It's like, yeah, those are traits, fine, but they're eye contact and hand flapping are autistic traits, lack of eye contact and hand flapping are autistic traits, but they are not diagnostic autistic traits. They are not traits that without which you are therefore not autistic. There's a whole profile of autism that I fit, but people don't know about it. It's hyper creative, hyper empathic, feeling you know, sensorily sensitive and having really different modes of socializing and communicating. So just one more little bit on this like education soapbox is the DSM-5, which has autism in there as a disorder. And there's different views on whether to call this a disorder or not. I am personally of the mindset that it is for sure a disability and that autism itself is a valid way of being that does not require treatment, but is very, very easily vulnerable to disorders, but is not necessarily itself a disorder, but there's definitely different ways of thinking about it there. So in the DSM, if you look at it, and you can just Google DSM-5 definition of autism, the word deficit comes up some ungodly number of times. And the way that autism is defined in the DSM is all about repetitive behavior. So that would be the stimming. So like I'm here with my putty. So I'm, I'm using my therapy putty. Otherwise, I would not be able to be sitting still. And repetitive behaviors could also be include this, like what medically used to be called, still is called, but shouldn't be called restrictive interests, but which the autistic community either calls special interests or autistic passions. So the DSM talks about that whole category of autistic experience. And then the other one they talk about is social deficits, deficit, 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 deficit. What they see, what they don't yet understand or what the model is not yet seeing is that autistic people socialize differently. We have different ways that we prefer to communicate. Some autistics do identify as having social disorder in that like, and to some extent I do too, like just talking to another person will raise my heart rate. I wish that didn't happen. <laughs> and I'm working with an OT to help with that. But my preference for info dumping, which is what I'm doing right now, for taking a chunk of information that I'm passionate about and just talking at someone about it, that's an extremely common preferred mode of communication for autistic people. The neurotypical medical world sees that as a deficit. 
they see it as something that you need to be trained out of, that it should be the autistic person's job to like pick up on the subtle cues of someone else getting bored or uncomfortable. In autistic culture, that's just a way you communicate. And it's great to, you know, maybe you want to time it or like with my husband, especially with non-neurodivergent people, I am really trying to do what I call consensual info dumping. <laughs> I want to talk to you about this thing. Can I have five minutes instead of just forcing myself on someone? But the social piece is really critical. And I kind of lost my train of thought a little bit, but essentially it's important to understand that part of what, oh, I know, the part of like this profile of autism that I am, and it doesn't, there aren't like specific profiles that anyone's exactly mapped out, but there are women I've met, most of them women, who are a lot like me. And we have a lot in common. We did really well in school. We had a lot of sensory sensitivities that didn't cause anyone else any trouble, right? We weren't going into fight mode and destroying the classroom. We were going into freeze and like pulling at our cuticles. Like, you know, it's just a different thing. So no one picked up on it. So sensory sensitivities, hyper empathic, hyper creative, difficulty regulating our emotions, difficulty in, with daily things like picking out the clothes that won't be super uncomfortable or shopping in grocery stores or feeding ourselves because food and our nervous systems can just not match so well. And then that we socialize, yeah, in just different ways, often preferring one-on-one, -on -one, not always. So that's just a little bit of like, yep, I'm autistic, you can believe it. And if you don't, I'm writing a memoir about it and you will by the time <laughs> you read that memoir. Well, I gotta tell you, first of all, please send me the memoir. And, and I've had- I'm feeling in some years it'll be done I and out somewhere. I've had to force myself to stay extra present on this conversation because what's been going through my head the entire time is, oh my gosh, I'm autistic. I have every one of those things that you just said, and that's another story, another Amazing. show. I need to unpack that, but I've had, I had some severe like learning challenge. It just, it's yeah. unbelievable. It's so a very wide, it's in people like, oh, I am, but you know, what does it even mean anymore? But it really does, like I plead with listeners and viewers to not be like, ugh, then the, then the label has no meaning. It really does because throughout the diverse presentation of what autism looks like, the user manual for how to take good care of ourselves is actually very similar. Virtually all of us, and I'm getting this, I'm speaking from my own experience, but I'm also getting it from spending a lot of time in autistic spaces online and doing a lot of reading. I'm not a clinician, but um, in general in the autistic world, Autistic people are understood to be more, at this point, experts because a lot of the clinical world is still operating on some very outdated and often harmful models. But essentially, right, the autistic's like self-care manual includes lots more rest than neurotypical people need because our brains are literally just taking in more information. So it's more exhausting to process. It includes finding the stims that work for you. So for some people, it's rocking. For me, it's a lot of putty or it's like something sharp to have. I would sit in class just like doing my hair over and over if I couldn't be taking notes constantly. Like, what are the stims that soothe you? I just got myself a compression vest. I spend time in our therapy swing at home. Little fidgets are really helpful. So it's rest, stims, self-stimulatory, soothing behaviors, and then special interests, which is this incredible key. And like, I look back on my life and it's like, oh my God, it's been one series after another of deep passions that when yeah. I find it, they light me up. It's like compulsive, but it's so healthy. The neurotypical, like medicalized version of this used to be, and I think it may still be happening somewhere that children would get, would only get to like engage in their special interests as a reward, which is extremely disturbing when I hear about that happening or hear that it used to happen because for an autistic person, our special interest is our way into the world. 
it animates us. It's where we feel safe. It's how we meet people. It's how we will socialize. And that includes for young kids who might be obsessed with looking at fans or like a friend of mine, their kid was obsessed with learning about toilets for a year. You know, yeah, that was hard, but it passed. In the meantime, like that was how he was orienting. And it's that same wiring that as you get older, links you into special interests that like become your social world and become the thing you want to do. I mean, for me, climate activism was a special interest. Hooray. And it's important to say that special interests don't have to serve a greater good to have inherent value, just like somebody in a wheelchair, like needs their wheelchair. And it doesn't matter if anyone else's life is better because of it. So an autistic person, like we need our special interests and we need access to them and time with them. So rest, simming, special interests, and sensory accommodations, whether that's like letting yourself eat the same food every day because that's how you can tolerate eating or wearing headphones or sensory seeking. Like my son needs big jumping and loud music to help him regulate. But 20 years in therapy presenting with a lot of autistic traits that you know we didn't put together meant that nobody recommended any one of those four things to me. Mm -hmm. And it took this discovery and finding the autistic community to like get my user manual, so to speak. And that's why it matters. When did you? It was just last December. And, okay. um, wow. but I had been deep diving into autistic community and culture for the sake of my son for a year and a half. And hey, I'm autistic. So when I deep dive, like I really deep dive. Yeah. So, and I learned very, like one of my skills that is thanks to my autistic wiring. All my disabilities are autistic. All of my skill sets are autistic. It's not like there's the disability part of me and the right. non-disabled. It's just all how my brain is. So one of my autistic skills is learn and then teach back. So it's only been since December, but this is one of the things I'm really good at. And what happened was I was trying to write an essay that to urge parents and teachers to listen to autistic adults when caring for autistic children, because that's not the MO. Mostly people listen to doctors. It makes sense. I mean, great. We should listen to doctors. Like I'm very, very much on the side of like science and, you know, medical wisdom. But sometimes the medical world lags a little bit behind the understanding of a social group, like how homosexuality was in the DSM, you know, as a mental illness. So we know that that's not true. There is something like that with autism. It's not a perfect parallel, but um, there's something like that in that there is a lot more richness to the culture of what it means to be autistic than the narrow medicalized view of it. Again, want to say disclaimer, like that is not at all a perfect <laughs> parallel. So anyway, here I am deep diving into autistic culture online, through Facebook groups, through memoir. And I'm like, man... I sure resonate a lot with all of this. And here I am spending every night curled in my son's therapy swing, feeling pretty good. But hey, I did well in school. I make eye contact. I don't seem to be disabled in the way my son is disabled. So I'm not autistic, probably. And I kind of wrote it off. And then I sat down and tried to write this essay and just kept trying to speak as an autistic adult. And it was like, I kept wanting to write from the perspective of someone who could be an expert talking to parents who are not autistic about their kids' experience because I shared their brain wiring. And I was like, wait a minute. And then I just looked up late diagnosed autistic women and found out, found this whole list of 200 traits. I had 180 of them. Then wow. I took some more tests online and was like, oh, 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 this is not subtle. Like this is not subtle at all. And all of a sudden everything made sense. I told my husband and Part of me expected him to be like, what? That's crazy. And his entire face just like 
his eyes got wide, his jaw dropped, and it was like, oh my God, our entire lives make sense now. Wow. So I'm pursuing clinical diagnosis mostly because I'm curious about the process, but I do want to say that a lot of clinical diagnoses are really, really tricky for adults because the tests are not really designed for us, especially for people with my presentation and especially for people for whom their intellectual abilities are more or less even across the board and our challenges are more with self-regulation and, and sensory stuff and our different information processing. So I'm going to a place that specializes in a much more holistic form of diagnosis that includes writing or making art about your life story. It includes looking at your lived experience. And I think that's like the thing I really wanna say is the DSM is about external observable traits, but autism should be diagnosed based on internal lived experience of the person mm -hmm. because we can mask. I mean, some of us can, and it's a privilege to be able to, and it's also a real hazard to mental health to mask, but I masked 40 years. And so external traits are not the thing. Wow. How awesome. Yeah, it's amazing. How awesome. It is the wow. most frustrating thing to ever happen to me. I remember a few things and they weren't in this category, but like when you finally realize and make sense of something that didn't make sense, I mean, it's so relieving, it's emotional, it's spiritual. I don't know. It's amazing. So I appreciate you sharing that story. I'm curious to keep up with your memoir and your diagnosis and see how that unfolds. Thank you. Can you tell us what it's been like to be a parent? Yeah, it's so unbelievably beautiful and so unbelievably hard. The thing I did not know I was signing up for was I didn't know that I had a hidden disability because I had coped so well externally. So becoming a mom was this, oh my God, and this is extremely common for women, for anybody becoming a parent, but I think particularly for the gestational parent who has, if they're carrying and giving birth to the baby, who don't realize that they have a disability. And then they've been like, I'll speak for myself, but I'm not really only speaking for myself. We're like, okay, I'm great at, I'm, I can do my job. Everybody loves me. Like I'm this high power career person. And then the sensory needs, the sleep deprivation, the utter, I mean, honestly, the sleep deprivation alone is so much harder for us because our systems are just much more easily out of whack. And so I was looking at all these other young mothers who are like, oh yeah, like I'm barely sleeping, but like, isn't my baby cute? And I was like, I'm barely sleeping and like, I want to die. Like, I can't, like, I'm miserable to an extent that is so far beyond what anybody would have thought. And I love my baby so much. And it didn't look like normal postpartum depression. And, I, and it wasn't. I was in autistic burnout, which is like a different thing. Um, no. The very beginning of motherhood was brutally hard for me. And I think it was hard for my baby too. He is an extraordinary little human. His skill sets, like so many autistics, right, so uneven. Because I tend to be verbose, I don't want to give like, I'm trying to try to be very concrete in the stories. So he would need like huge swings. You know, it's not like, oh, you know, the five S's and you swing your baby. This was like, you had to like swing him from one end of the room to the other. And when he got upset, it was massive outbursts. And when he was happy, it was massive joy. And his attention from a very young age was extraordinary. Um, my favorite story is once for 45 minutes, I watched my six month old sit there and turn a dry, clean diaper over and over and over, inspecting it. Mm. And I was like, I don't know a lot about child development, but I think that's very common. Right. Right. right, so we figured something was different. How early? Um, well, that was six months. I mean, we knew he was unusual, but 
granted, my husband and I are, we like to say if we'd had 10 biological children, the chances are maybe one of them would have been neurotypical. <laughs> so like, I don't know. He was very relational with us and and makes eye contact and responded to his name. So like it, again, some of those early signs of a more classic autism presentation were missing. When he was three, he was in early intervention in part because transitions were absolutely and utterly impossible. Like getting him to stop doing what he was doing, to go anywhere. And he would have meltdowns that, you know, some people call tantrums. I do not. They were like baby panic attacks that could last for 45 minutes or an hour where oh. his rage and it's like so intense and he was pre-verbal. So it just broke my heart. Mm. Um, so he was in early intervention, COVID hit, meh, you know, early intervention, utterly missed that he was autistic. The only reason that we caught the autism identity as early as we did, which was when he was three and a half, is that he was in a preschool. And the preschool is like, so your kiddo is like running around when everyone else is seated. And, and I was like, oh, he's just bored. And they were like, mm, I think he's sensory seeking. Maybe you could go check out an occupational therapist. And I was like, oh my God, I didn't even know that's a thing. Tell me everything. That sounds like the most amazing thing. So absolutely love we found an incredible, it's called neurodivergent affirming occupational therapist. That means she's child led. She's not coming in with a whole bunch of goals and trying to get the kid to do the thing. She's letting the play unfold. She's listening and watching for my son. If he gets scared, it's not like, oh, it's okay. You can do it. It's really tuning in. Great. We're going to do something else. How do you find safety in your body? Giving him language. So my son and I are both hyperverbal. Not every autistic person is at all, of course. Though I do want to say in case any folks are listening who have non-speaking autistic kids that getting a speech language pathologist who will give your child like language instead of just buttons with pre-programmed sentences is a really great gift so that they can communicate better. So anyway, we were able to give him this language. We tried to give him language of like, when your engine's too high, when your engine is too low, meaning if he's overexcited or if he is like too sluggish, but he just liked the grown-up words of regulated and dysregulated. Interesting. Yeah. So he thrived in OT and then he began to display more like externally observable autistic traits, like wanting us to read the calendar to him as a bedtime story. That kind of repetitive, you know, being able to just say the same thing over and over and just find it hysterical every time. Um, <laughs> we essentially cracked the code of his sensory system, meaning we understood what sensory needs he has, that where he's like hypersensitive to certain touches, but he's hyposensitive to proprioception, which is a lot of autistics are, meaning we like deep touch to help ground our bodies in space. We like understood that. And still these meltdowns were happening and every transition was still tricky. And that's where we kind of get to the next part of the story. Okay. How did you move through your dark times? Were you able to evolve from the dark spaces, the dark clouds of early child development? Yeah. I mean, that like the early postpartum stuff was extremely hard for me. And honestly, the only things that helped me were sleep and getting the right medication once I was able to switch. I wish I had known more about STEMS then, but when you're an autistic burnout, the things that you got to do are rest, do whatever STEMS are soothing and safe for you and spend time with your special interests. So for me at that point, that was my baby. So I just wanted to be with him. I didn't want to be working and being able to pull back on work, which I know not everyone can do, but I imagine that many of your listeners have had to do, you know, even if it didn't even seem remotely possible financially. So I pulled back on work and that's how I got through that really dark time. The other really tricky part has been lately 
where my kiddo burnt out really badly in public school. This is where we can talk about PDA, um, which is, so my child is autistic with a particular nervous system disability that can co-occur often with autism, but is not the same as autism. And it's called PDA. And the classic thing it stands for is pathological demand avoidance. But we prefer to call it pervasive drive for autonomy, in part because the demand avoidance, again, here's like this medicalized thing. The demand avoidance is just the external observable behavior, but it in and of itself is not the problem. The problem is that your child or you, there's adult PDAers because you don't grow out of it, have an overactive amygdala in the back of your brain. There's a thing that is firing off that your life is in danger if you experience a lack of autonomy or a direct demand. And that's the struggle. So the demand avoidance, so it can look like a child just, I mean, just not doing what a parent asked them to do or, you know, having total inflexibility or having like absolute meltdowns when you don't have the right popsicle in the house, whatever it is. Um, it's like our lives were a minefield of panic triggers for our child. And we didn't understand why. Because we had his sensory needs met. And essentially, it was just through the parent grapevine that I heard of this thing called PDA. And I looked it up and was like, oh, that just describes my kiddo to a T. And, and this is why everything is so hard. His whole nervous system is in fight, flight, or freeze almost all the time. Wow. If you can imagine the stress that, that a child is under. And even with us and my husband and I are like extremely, I mean, we were already parenting with this collaborative approach with really respecting what he was saying. Like not, we're not power over parents. We're very much like in that culture of like collaborating with your kid and understanding that they have legitimate needs and all their behaviors, communication. We were already doing that. And it was still extraordinarily hard, mm -hmm. you know, all the more so for family cultures where like children have to listen or else. And then these PDAers can end up in cycles of trauma and abuse for a lot of their lives because putting a PDA kid in a room when they're panicking, like when it looks like they're acting out, but they're actually panicking. So if you put, if you isolate a child in that instance, it just adds to the trauma. And of course, we're all doing the best we can as parents. This is a little known neurology that is like now people are figuring it out. So once I had this name for it and realized the mistakes that we had made given his wiring and he burnt out at school, he had, he had, like, got a new teacher, the teacher was really like top down. These are their behaviors that are okay. These are their behaviors that aren't and not super relational. And he's just stopped being able to tolerate school. Like could not separate from me, would mm. have been massive violent panic if I had. So my life abruptly changed. And instead of having a part-time career and a kid in school, I had a child in a mental health crisis at home full-time who could not tolerate me leaving the room. And this was back in April. Wow. And I was like, okay, well, like I understand autism. I understand I'm autistic. I understand he's autistic. I got the stimming and special interest things down. This is something else again. <laughs> like, like this was a level of disability that I was so unprepared for. But I realized that it was the result of pushing my child's nervous system past his breaking point for five years of his life without realizing I was doing it. Hmm. What I'd like to do, and if I would have known, I would have scheduled this as a part one of three shows for the sake of time, maybe you can kind of like take us through April until now and sort of like what's worked, what hasn't yeah, worked. Yeah, great. And then so, we can fire it up another time. Yeah, I'd love that. Um, Thank you so much. Thank you so much for this. A pleasure. Um, and I, 
I go on at length about the things I love because info dumping. So April, we had about six weeks of him not leaving the house at all, which also meant me barely leaving the house at all. And when I say this, I mean like you would have had to bodily drag a panicking child down the stairs, all 47 pounds of him. First of all, that's inhumane. But second, like it's not even physically possible. So he's just not leaving the house because his nerve, he has just been, he's like, he's called uncle, right? He's like, nope, my nervous system is done. I am going to sit here and watch YouTube for 12 hours a day. And thank God I found my way to a woman named Low Demand Amanda. She's at Low Demand Amanda on Instagram, um, Amanda Dykeman on the internet. And she is very similar to me. She's an ordained minister. I'm an ordained rabbi. She has a really similar late diagnosed autistic profile. Mom of three neurodivergent kids. Came out with a great book called Low Demand Parenting recently. And I was able to sign up for a course with her, with other all moms of PDA kids. And together we learned this technique of low demand parenting. And the essence of low demand parenting, which is helpful for so many, it's helpful for so many people, because we all have nervous systems and so many of them are tapped out, but it's particularly helpful for PDA kids and other neurodivergent kids. The idea is demands are triggering for a PDA child, a PDA person. So trying to get my child to wash his hands, trying to get him to sit at the table for dinner, trying to get him to put on clothes, right? All of these that would be like, oh, whatever for a neurotypical child are literally are panic triggering to my kid. And so the, the conventional parenting move is I'm the parent in charge and you need to wash your hands. Like, and if you don't want to, we're just going to hold you over the sink and wash them because this is hygiene and it's COVID and like you have to wash your hands. The low demand parenting move is, okay, I have a child with a significant nervous system disability for whom listening to my demand to wash hands is actually putting him into panic mode. Mm-hmm. So he's not going to learn at all. So how else, what is my deep need? What's my deep why? As Amanda would say, okay, I want my family to be healthy. Okay. What are the chances we're actually going to get sick from my kid not washing his hands right now? Can I use hand sanitizer? Can I wait until he's discharged from school longer? Well, he wasn't at that point, he was going to school, but then he wasn't. What other demands can I drop from this child's life so that he is not living in a minefield of triggers? And how do I get my own needs met without asking too much of my child's nervous system. That's the essence of the practice as I understand it. And it doesn't mean asking nothing because there are things, especially as a kiddo comes out of burnout, that are not too much for their nervous system. So then you get to add those back and see how they do. But it has been a practice of radical low demand parenting. It has been letting go of every preconceived notion I had about what it means to be a good mother. We have no screen time limits in our house for PDAers. Screens are very regulating and therapeutic. They're a safe space. Our kid is currently, he's five and a half. He's on Minecraft all the time. It's his special interest. He's learning coding. He's learning about the world. He's intellectually and creatively engaged. My purest mind would have been like, I don't want you on a screen for 10 hours a day. But my other option is to have a child who is anxious and panicking. And so it's a much better option <laughs> to allow him to learn and grow in an environment that works for him, understanding that likely he will not need to be on a screen 10 hours a day for the rest of his life. I just want to also say like that the my husband and I have financial privilege. We own our own home and my husband has been able to like notch up his career to make up for the lost income from me. 
And I know that that's just not true of everyone and, and that there is so much inherent injustice because of the economic hardships that go along with disability. And so I just want to acknowledge that I'm speaking from a position of privilege, but also really like feel that and think about it a lot every day. Um, because it's, it's hard no matter what, but it's also a lot harder if you're scared about getting basic needs met. Everything you shared, you share so eloquently. I've learned so much. I apologize for cutting it short because I could do this for another hour or two. But I want to, you know, thank you for coming on the show. I'm sure the listeners feel the same way. It's called The Tide is Rising, right? So th- yes, my book, well, that won't be out for another year or so. In the meantime, um, but I'm very excited about it because I have this whole life. Yes. I'm an activist and writer and it kind of brings everything together. But yes, The Tide is Rising will be out in a bit. And in the meantime, you can find me on the web at Rabbi Shoshana. R-A-B-B-I-S-H-O-S-H-A-N-A.com. And I have a mailing list and some work up there. And then I'm posting a lot on Instagram and that's at Rabbi Shoshana on Instagram, which is a wealth of information from the hashtag actually autistic community on there. Awesome. I have a feeling that our listeners are going to want to learn more from you and connect more from you. So anything that will allow them to get in contact with you, if you can send me an email, we'll put it in the show notes for people to to connect. And I just want to Thank you for coming on. Wish you and your family an amazing life that it sounds like you're having. And I hope we stay connected and can kind of continue this journey together. Likewise. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you. And until next time. Sounds wonderful. All right. This concludes our show for today. And I'd like to personally thank you for spending the time with us on a topic near and dear to our hearts. If you'd like to be part of the Naked Parent Nation and help us reach those parents that are struggling and overwhelmed, there's no better way to help than by subscribing, rating, and reviewing the show on iTunes. iTunes highlights the shows based on these metrics, and the more the show gets highlighted, the more opportunities people will have to be introduced to the show where they can hear that message of hope or that tip that can change everything. So follow the link in our show notes And we hope to have you back here tomorrow where we'll do it again. From the team here at the Naked Parent Podcast, we wish you the life you've always dreamed of and then some. So long.